Sunday, April 26, 2015, and the time is 10 p.m. You're listening to Queer Talk, an LGBT Hero Awards radio show. I'm your host, Xavier Mejia. LGBT Hero Awards Talk Radio is a listener-funded progressive station that interviews guests from the world of entertainment, art, and community, politics, public health, and business. Our team sends a big thank you to John St. Dennis, Karasu Delaware, Ryan Mendoza, Ophelia Barba, your contribution for your contributions to the LGBT Hero Awards Talk Radio Station. You're welcome to talk to us live by dialing 323-870-3984. Joining me this morning as my co-host is Zoe Luna. Hi, good morning, Zoe. How are you? Sorry. Um, good morning, Xavier. I'm doing well. We are currently launching the radio show with my mom and me, and it's called The ONZ. It launches next Sunday, May 3rd. Um, I'm a third here on here on as a part of the LGBT Hero Radio talk show. Oh my God, I said that so bad. <laughs> Our first guest is going to be James Gilliam from the ACLU, and we're going to talk about his new book, how his life's going. Well, it's not his new book; he gets to write a chapter in the book. And yeah, we're going to catch up with James, and um, he was my former uh, attorney, and he's now a good family friend. So yeah. That's great, Zoe. I'm excited to see the show, or not to see, to listen to the show, and I'm confident that you'll both be doing quite well, and I'm sure we're all going to be listening, so <laughs> I look look forward to that. Let's uh, let's share with our guests what we're talking about this morning. On, today, on today's episode, on today's episode, be taking a deeper look at the roots of the gay civil rights movement as we sit down to talk with the director, George Gregorio Davila. Gregorio Davila is a 38-year-old gay Latino who lives in Los Angeles, California. Gregorio's last project, I'm sorry, correction, Gregorio's project is LA, a queer history showing the effect that Angelino's had on the world that we live in today. Please visit the pro- the project's website at www.laaqueerhistory.com. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're, we will be taking, talking to the director, uh, Gregorio Davila. Let's listen to Leo Vargas' Don't Want to Go. Oh, no. 
that brought me life Now it's not the same You no longer want me by your side I know you don't want to fight But no Don't Want to Go by Leo Vargas. You are listening to Queer Talk, an LGBT Hero Words talk radio show. I'm Zoe Luna, and I am co-hosting with Xavier Mejia. You are welcome to talk to us live by dialing 323-870-3984. Thank you, Zoe. We're now joined by Director of LA, a Queer History, Gregorio Davila. Thank you, Gregorio, for being here this morning. 
Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here, and I'm really glad that you're doing a show like this for local um, LGBT and Latino artists and performers. So thank you. Thank you. Gregorio, uh, can you share with with our audience your background? Uh, where did you grow up, and how did you get into directing film? I grew up in a little town in Southern California, Riverside County, called Hemet. And I was there until about I was 18. After high school, I left like the weekend after I graduated high school. And I was in Seattle for eight years, and then I was working on ships for three years, and then I came back here and settled in L.A. in 2007. And I've always been into films. Um, I've spent the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years doing random um, sort of roles on films. I was, uh, um, I helped out with a lot of films in Seattle, just kind of in the, you know, production assistant. In L.A., I was a um, um, production designer for a while, and then I started just doing some video editing, and just it snowballed from there, and now finally I'm working on my own project, which I've been wanting to do for a very long time. I read that L.A., a queer, a queer history, is produced by Film Bliss Studios. Can you give us some background on Film Bliss Studios? Sure. Filmless Studios is a small independent production company that was started by Mario J. Novoa. And um, he's also the, one of the producers of the film. And they've done um, some, some shorts that Mario's done along with produced some other um, LGBT and, and not, not even all LGBT movies as well. So, um, yeah. So how did you become interested in the in the gay civil rights movement? Um, well, obviously, being gay, I have an interest in that. But um, I don't know. I just started reading. When I was doing my research, I started reading about all these people in L.A. that have done so much for the community and for the civil rights movement that are sort of um, relatively unknown when you think about other people like Harvey Milk and all those other people. And and so, um, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that bring those stories to light and, and show what these our local uh, heroes have done in the, for our community. Can you share with us who is on your team and what roles they play? Yeah, well, it's me, and then Mario is the other. Um, he was the original producer. Um, I've been working on this film for close to three years now, and um, after the first year, Mario came in, and then it was me and Mario, and then um, just this past probably like six or seven months, she, he, uh, we had uh, three more team members, like Richard uh, Corral, who I think you guys know, or like Xavier knows. Mm-hmm. And um, Brenna Jens, uh, who has been sort of a co-producer, and also um, a guy named Stephen Rollick, who has been our camera guy. And so um, all these people have been sort of working on and off on the project for um, a year or two now. Mm-hmm. 
What roles are they playing? Oh, yeah. Well, um, Mario is the producer. He was the original producer. Um, Richard has been the executive producer. He's the one that's been really, really good at getting us funding, uh, which we're in fundraising right now to complete the film. Brenna is a co-producer. She's sort of like, you know, she does a lot of the graphics and a lot of the paperwork and the budgets and all that, all the paperwork stuff that I hate doing. And um, Stephen has been our, our camera guy and our sound guy on a lot of the shoots that we've we've done recently. So... So I know you talked a little bit about this, but can you share with us uh, with more detail, how did you decide to work on Ali, a queer history? Well, I've always been, I've always loved documentaries and I've always been interested in history. And I just started reading about um, certain aspects of uh, queer history in LA. And the more I, I, I found out about it, the more I became fascinated with it. And so it became sort of an obsession, and I started reading and reading and reading and exploring, and um, it just it just hit me one day. I was like, "This would make a really good documentary." And so I started outlining it, and then started there. And what sets your film apart from others? Well, there's been actually quite a few documentaries on aspects of of gay history of Los Angeles, but nothing that sort of encompasses it all and and ties it all together and goes really as far back as we do. We go um, at the turn of the 20th century is when we start, and we could even go further than that. We could even go back to the Native American times. I mean, the most I the most I went, you know, with the two spirits and all that. When I first started, that's as far as back as we were going to go. But I mean, that's like four movies if we went far that far. So maybe there'll be another, uh, a second part or a third part. I mean, if we could get on, like, I could see this being a four-part series on PBS or something. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, that's, we're, I'm not even uh, thinking about that right now. I've got, a, I've got so much other stuff on my mind. One step at a time. Yeah. <laughs> So talking about steps, what kind of steps do you take to assure having enough material in, the, in a film that argues on the point of, sto- uh, of the Stonewall riots? Where not, we're not the birthplace of the gay civil rights mo- uh, movement. Well, I didn't really have to take steps to do it because, I mean, the information is there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I really don't know why. L.A. has not had the recognition in the gay rights or even the gay arts or the gay culture um, that it that it has. I mean, yeah, the Stonewall riots did really, really spark mm-hmm. the national movement, but there have been people working in L.A. towards gay civil rights since the ni- 1947, 1950s with the Madison Society and Harry Hay and one magazine in 1953, which was the first gay magazine in the country, in the world, actually. Um, And then, you know, L.A. has a string of firsts. Um, Like I said, the Madison Society was the first um, longstanding gay civil rights organization. It started in 1950. The first 
gay magazine that was ever recorded was in 1947. It was a lesbian magazine called Vice Versa. And then we have one magazine, which came along in 1953, which was the first homo-positive magazine in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, One Incorporated started here, which is a part of one magazine. The One Archives started Mm -hmm. here, which is the first archives and I think the largest. We have also the first gay church started here in 1968, started by Reverend Troy Perry. The first gay pride parade ever in the world was here in 1970. I mean, it's just like the list goes on and on. And mm-hmm. um, so I'm just really trying to make this film and sort of reclaim L.A.'s place in LGBT history as as really the birthplace of gay culture and, and gay art and gay civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. So walk us through the film. What are some what are some of the highlights? Well, it, like I said, um, I had to sort of tone it down for a two-hour film, and two hours is really long, yeah. and for most people, but there's a lot of information, and it starts sort of at the turn of the 20th century, and um, it really starts with the male and female impersonators mm-hmm. that were around that were like. I mean, this was like family entertainment that people would take their kids to go see someone like Julian Elton, who was the highest paid stage performer in the world in the in the 19-teens, 1920s. He was getting like $3,000 a week to travel around dressed as a woman dancing around on stage. And um, was that accepted? It was totally accepted because at that time, I mean, there wasn't even a word for what homosexuals were. It wasn't in the public consciousness that it the thing even existed not like today i mean it's hard to it's hard to think about it but it's true i mean people it just wasn't every an everyday thing that you saw so when people saw somebody they just thought it was a performer like oh wow almost like um almost you know like like the other minstrel shows and almost like blackface i mean it was just it was i mean even though blackface was terribly offensive it was sort of the same thing it was like I was reading one article in my research that that said um one it was a critic that said some paraphrasing it said just just as a white man makes the best stage negro so a man makes a better more a, a better interpretation of a woman on stage because it takes it takes a man to show what to show a woman what femininity is yeah. I mean that was sort of like the the idea of the time. So it was totally accepted. It was, you know, actually downtown at the Orpheum, Julian Altage performed there and other and other other performers, like a female imperson or male impersonator named Kitty Donor performed there all the time. She would get up on stage dressed in suits and bow ties and sting, and sing love songs, you know, directed towards women. And then of course when Hollywood came there would well first of all there would be no hollywood if it wasn't for gays and lesbians there would be no glamour there would be no um i mean who do you think designed all those clothes and yeah. you know who do you think designed all uh, their took their photographs and designed the sets and there was even some amazing film directors like george cuker and um uh james wales and and even dorothy arsner who was the first 
woman director. She was a lesbian. She also invented the boom mic. Mm -hmm. And so LA um, LA had a huge, because of Hollywood, there was a ton of um, gay people here. And unfortunately, after the Hayes Code, the production code of 1930, 1933, um, that sort of changed everything. And people like Julian Eltinge, it became a... Um, his career was basically ended. He died penniless. He went from being the richest performer in the country to penniless because it just was not socially acceptable anymore to dress and drag. And then, you know, after that, we go to World War II. Uh, I really think that actually the, uh, the Hayes Code, which changed the way masculine and feminine was supposed to be portrayed on screen and there was no room for any deviation of that it really i think changed the way society looked at masculine because you know movies affect people they affect they they change how people look at you know the world and each other people emulate it so i really think that the Hayes code was really the sort of the beginning of an institutionalized discrimination and criminalization of of gays and lesbians or anybody who dared to bend the gender norms at all. And then... What was the purpose of the Hayes Code? Who was behind it? Um, well, there was a lot of scandals going on in Hollywood at the time. I mean, Hollywood was very, very scandalous during that time. I mean, it still kind of is, but <laughs> it always has been. But, I mean, there was just a lot of scandals going on. I mean... There was rape and allegations of people of, against actors, and it was it was just like crazy. So, and then the imagery also got really started to get really raunchy because there was no there wasn't any sort of regulation at all. And um, they appointed a man named um, I think his name was William Hayes. I think, yeah, William Hayes to be the head of the Hayes Code. And of course, the religious right was behind it because they ruined everything, <laughs> and and um, they started to enforce it really strictly in 1933. So it really, I mean, there was a list of like do nots, and there was like white slavery in there. There was like child, you know, nudity. There was the thing that outlawed gays and lesbians or any reference to it was it was called sex perversion. That was under that umbrella of sex perversion which would have been any man dressing as a woman, a man dressing as a man, or showing any man that did not look like Clark Gable or act like Clark Gable. Mm. So you went from, like, somebody like Rudolph Valentino, who was known to be, you know, the Latin lover. Um, and a heartthrob. And a heartthrob, and he was, you know, very sensual. He had very soft features. He wore makeup, and, you know, he was kind of a dandy. And then after the Hayes Code, you have somebody like Clark Gable, who, you know doesn't give a damn apparently so um so the idea of masculinity it totally shifted, shifted. it's yeah. shifted and um yeah and i think that really and also it shifted pretty dramatically during and after world war ii i mean during the war a lot of um men were stationed here in la and so the population in la grew that was like the biggest boom in the la population in in history 
And, you know, a lot of the when men went off to war, so they had to have women come in and work at factories like Lockheed and Burbank. And there was a bunch of factories all around town. So you had a lot of women coming into town, too. And, of course, a lot of them were lesbians. And so these bars between the men in the port and the women working in the factories, there was tons of bars that just popped up all over the city, gay bars. And mm-hmm. Pershing Square was notoriously cruisy. Um, there was hotels downtown that were basically sex clubs and you know, the gay bars were generally in little seedy parts of town because that's the only place that, you know, gay people could thrive at that time. I had read that that Pershing Square was like a cruising area oh, like yeah. in the 1920s. Yeah, even up until, I don't remember when they changed it. I think it was in the 50s or 60s, maybe even later. I can't remember. But you see it now and it's hideous and ugly. It's this big concrete slab. But it was huge and lush and I mean, the reason that they did change it was because there was so much gay men cruising there. Mm-hmm. They had to get rid of all the beautiful um, forest trees and the yeah. bushes, and <laughs> and now it looks ugly like it is now. But, um, yeah. And then after the war, you know, all these people that came out to L.A., gay people that realized they were gay and started hanging out and gay, with gay people like they didn't want to go back home. Women were expected to just go back home and get married. A lot of them didn't want to. It was sort of like this return to American values, quote-unquote, which is what people keep saying, All the, uh, even still today. I don't even know what that means, what American value is. But because everyone's American, so everyone has their own deceptive, own idea of what a, a value is. So, um, so a lot of them stayed, and... And that was when really there was this huge visibility of gay and lesbian people all of a sudden because they were everywhere in L.A. all of a sudden. And then people got freaked out about that, especially the LAPD. And how did gay people uh, communicate with each other then? Well, from what I could hear and read was, I mean, there was gay bars, but even before that, I mean, there was no really name for what they were. Like someone like Harry Hay, who started the Mattachine Society, he was around in the late 30s, in the mid to late 30s. He was a communist. He was a member of the Communist Party. And he was also a lover of Will Gear, who later became Grandpa Walton on the Waltons. Mm. So they were lovers in the 30s. And Harry Hay, from what I could read in interviews with him, he would say that, you know, it was cruising. You know, you would go, you'd see someone on the street, and you just knew. It was like a look in the eyes, and you guys caught each other's eyes, and you knew. Or someone would be wearing a handkerchief in their in their um, jacket that matched their tie or bow tie, and that was like sort of like a little code that they would like use. Clocking. I don't know what clocking means. Clocking is like when you see a trans person, and then you're like, oh, that person doesn't pass. So like. No, I think. Wait, I'm sorry. Yeah, like um, like that's the way of telling that a person's gay. Like, oh, that person's gay. By the way. By the way, they look. Um, I guess, but I mean, back then you couldn't be, you couldn't be open about it. I mean, oh. there was no trans people back then. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and then and actually back then they were there was no word for it. So Harry Hay uh, said they would call him temperamental, mm-hmm. like they were temperamental men. <laughs> and there's actually even a play about that. Um, period called the temperamentals that I think was was pretty successful. So and but then after the war and all that, there were gay bars. But I mean, a lot of people still went there in secret. They would go and they would be gay in the bar, but then they'd leave and then they'd have to be straight on the street. Or and a lot of them were probably married too with kids. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Cause... And I know that, that you could have just stopped at, you know, just 100 years back, right? Because there's so much to work with. You were talking about the studios, the sort of uh, government trying to marginalize the community or shut down or, or disempower. Um, but you actually do speak about a two-spirited uh, queer person. What interested you in including, including uh, two-spirited people? Why go back as far as uh, Native American uh, culture? Well, the, I know before I even started doing this project, I had written a screenplay about two spirits um, that took place in New Mexico, actually, because I had an, another thing that I sort of discovered and became obsessed about. And then I ended up writing the screenplay. But um, they were also um, here in L.A. There was um, there is still a tribe called the Tangva and then a tribe called the Chumash, which is over kind of near Santa Barbara. And they had two spirits in there. So, I mean, it was part of the history. And, you know, they were, as you know, and many people that may be listening to this know that they were accepted parts of their society. They weren't considered weird or different. Well, they were considered different, but they were considered better because they were different. They were the societies. thought that if you were born different in some way that you were considered special because the gods took extra care in making you different. So that way you should be, you should be honored. So a lot of them were shamans and, and they had very esteemed places in their societies where it's like completely opposite in the society we live in. You're like, you're different. You need to conform to what we are. So, you know, get it together. So, um, I've always been, you know, obsessed with that, and I wanted to include it in the film. But uh, I mean, it would be a four-hour film if I went back that far. So, right. Uh, I, well, thanks for for including uh, the two spirit um, in the in the discussion. You know, um, I remember reading earlier on that that there was a, a two spirit, you know, in, in Native uh, culture, and it, I also was intrigued and read more and read more and I you know it's been a long time since I, I talked about this but um one of the things that I was fascinated by was the the, the acknowledgement of and I believe they were called Badbachi or Badbache I'm, I'm I don't remember the the exact word but um I was really fascinated with the fact that um uh, what people that we would call queer today were you know People who were thought of so highly, and, and, and it's just it's beautiful, right? And oftentimes, when a parent or parents were lost at war, they had, you know, uh, the children were inherited by these couples, and also were seen as spiritual guides and or leaders or all of that. So, you know, I, I think that it's important to think about. Um, Native Native times because really a lot of what's happened with gender and sexuality and a lot of that is very much a Eurocentric influ- influence, right? Because when the colonists came here, particularly to build the missions and all of that, the first people that they really attacked were these two-spirited people, right? That, that was a bigger offense to them. They they definitely didn't understand it and really created a lot of harm to these people. So
So um, I, I think it's important to have a show like Queer Talk, to have a documentary like uh, LA, a queer history, um, as part of a, a discussion in our community, because to a degree that also says we're taking back our stories, right? Okay. We're, we're reclaiming um, what we are, who we are, and, and being able to put that out there really is going to help empower a whole new generation of young people who may not have been exposed to this otherwise. So for yeah. that, thank you. Yeah, and, oh, and yeah, I, I mean, this goes back to the religion thing, what I was saying earlier, how they ruin everything. I mean, West and that European religion, there was no place for anything that was different. And they came over. I read, I read stories, one story in particular, that one of the Spaniard um, explorers rounded up a bunch of those two spirits and just like sick the dogs on them and like had them all killed. And it was just you hear stories upon story about that. Um, they were just so offended by that. And what's kind of ironic about the two spirits here in California in Southern California and LA is that they were marrying each other. You had these two men marrying each other hundreds of years, four hundreds of years before Prop 8 came along and mm. told us, you know, that's wrong. Uh, so it's like on this land, talking about reclaiming our history, <clears throat> on this land there have been same genders marrying each other for hundreds of years, and who are you to come in and say that that's wrong, you know? Right, right, right. So why do you think that Angelinos um, have been sidestepped in, in terms of including our stories um, as part of the larger larger civil rights, uh, gay civil rights uh, movement? Um, you know, I, I think a lot of it has to do with Stonewall. Um, Stonewall was a huge and important part in the gay civil rights movement. Um, but, you know, as a lot of people know, that just up the street from where we are now, over um, on the Sunset Junction, there was the Black Cat Tavern, where there was um, the first ever recorded public protest against by homosexuals, against police entrapment or whatever, blue fascism they called it, ever in the country. And that was in 1967, because there was a raid on New Year's Eve in 1966, mm. where a bunch of people got um, beaten and arrested. And so about a month later, it took them a month to do it because they were so scared of doing it. And, um, you know, and like I said, there were so many other firsts in L.A., but, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, L.A., uh, New York and San Francisco always always take the crowns. Um, I think a, part of, a lot of it is because of Harvey Milk, too. Um, and, you know, not saying that those things aren't important, but what we did here is important too, and that's I think why I want to um, sort of bring all these to light to the masses. There's a lot of people that know about this, obviously, but not. You have to sort of know who these people are, where to look. You have to be interested in it to go find out who these people are. You know, everyone who knows who Harvey Milk is, everyone who knows what Stonewall riots are, but. I mean, I interviewed a lot of these people for the film, and you know, some a lot of them were in their 80s and late 80s, and they've been people who have done so much stuff for our community. And, and these are Angelino. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people that 
uh, and I wanted to, you know, their stories should be told. I mean, I was very fortunate to even get to interview them while they're with us mm-hmm. and get their stories. And and so I'm glad that we have that on camera, and I, I just hope that we can, you know, just educate people on on more of our history and L.A. history. What was it like for you personally to sit down and face-to-face with some of the storytellers and people who have, you know, a story to share about what it was like to be LGBT or queer identified? Um, or like you said, perhaps at that time there was no identification that was necessarily publicly used, but uh, in today's terms, using queer. Um, what was it like for you to, to hear their stories? Were they... Were they? Did they have a lot of information that was very common, or you know, what was their experience like? Well, depending on the person, I mean, some of them were. I, we interviewed people that were just sort of average everyday citizens too that were living through it, but a lot of the people we interviewed were, um, you know, people who were pioneers in the movement. So their stories were a little bit different than the average day person because they were people that were like, um, actually went out and said they're going to do something. So it was just, it was pretty amazing to sit and listen to two hours of these people talk. I mean, I could have done it for four, um, each person. Um, and it was also very surprising just the stuff that went on and how gay people were treated back then and how they had to live and you know talking about going to a bar in LA and there was this jukebox and if the the vice squad were coming in then the bartender would flip this switch and the juke one jukebox would turn off and the other one would turn on and that was a sort of a a clue for everyone to know to like the gay man would you just grab a dyke basically you just like mm-hmm. all the gay man would grab a lesbian and then they just pretend it was a straight bar and the vice squad would come in do their thing and then after they left it switch back i mean you can't even think about that now but and so it was just amazing and and what i think was important too is that these people are our gay elders and I think in in the community, in community in general, but even especially in the gay community, we sort of end up losing respect for our elders. They sort of become invisible because, you know, they're just, and there, there's been documentaries about this too, it's about gay LGBT elders who just, you know, they have no one to take care of them because at that, that time they didn't have any children. They didn't have any families. Now people are having families, so they have people to take care of them now as they get older. But back then you didn't. So you would, if your partner died, you know, what were you going to do? I mean, you had, you couldn't, you didn't, you couldn't get any health benefits from them or any sort of anything because you couldn't get married. You couldn't get any kind of, you know, alimony, whatever. So and that's a big issue right now, right? Uh, housing, in particular, for elders is definitely something that I keep reading about as part of a crisis within the LGBT community. Yeah, and speaking of another first in LA, the Triangle Square, which is over there on Vine, just off of Vine in Hollywood, um, it's a huge 
um, LGBT elder housing complex, and that was actually the first one in the world, mm-hmm. another first for Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And they're, they built another one, too, or they're building another one somewhere in, in, in L.A., I don't remember. But, yeah, it just sort of gave me this sort of newfound respect for all these elders and, and what they've been through. And I feel really fortunate that I was able to connect with these people and hear their stories. I mean, it, it changed my outlook on everything. What do you want the audience to leave with when they see your film? <clears throat> well, I want the LGBT audience to leave with a newfound sense of who they are, where they where they came from, and to know that we have we are a people that have a culture that is unique to ourselves and be proud of that and also be aware that and to have a new found respect for the gay elders that came before us and to know that gay pride isn't all just about floats and dancing mm-hmm. and little your underwear and getting yeah. drunk well that's great but the gay pride when they started in 1970s it was more of a it was more of a um demonstration of, for gay rights and gay equality, so I think people. Maybe when gay pride was free. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when it was free, when it wasn't. Yeah. Anyway, I haven't. I've never even gone to L.A. Gay Pride because I'm not. I don't want to spend thirty dollars to get into. It's like you. Okay, I don't want to go there. But <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I want them to be aware that um, who they are and where they came from. And part of the reason I'm making this, too, is for the heterosexual community and maybe people that are homophobic or whatever to know that we have a history in this country and we have we have contributed to this country in ways that you don't even know. Mm-hmm. So maybe if people understood where we came from, they would have a better understanding of who we are as people and as a culture and there wouldn't be there would be a little less homophobia. Because when I went to school, all we knew, all we were taught about black people was that they were slaves and they were brought over by ships. And then we we learned, of course, about Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and all that. But we didn't. That's that's it. And that's sort of what gay people are going through now. There's no education of our history in this country, and we have a history in this country. We're part of this, the fabric of this country, just as much as anyone else is. Mm-hmm. And Angelino plays a key and, role. And Angel, Los Angeles has yeah, has a key role in that history. And there are people there are people that have changed the world for the better. LGBT people who have changed the world for the better. Um, and I just want to bring that to light. I mean, like I said, there would Hollywood would not be what it was if it was not for gays and lesbians yeah. and the Jews, but, <laughs> but not, <laughs> the artistic ones are the gay Yeah. This film is a part of the of the official 2015 LA Pride kickoff party. What does the event? Where does it take? What day does the event take place, and where does where is it going to happen? Yes, we are very, very, very fortunate to have um, be partnered up with Christopher Street West, which is LA Pride. A lot of people don't know that, but mm-hmm. the first LA Pride was called Christopher Street West because it was. Um, sort of a demonstration in the honor of um, the Stonewall riots 
which was on Christopher Street yeah. and on the East Coast. So that's why they called it Christopher Street West. So in L.A., they were going to have major demonstrations in New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. And um, Troy, Reverend Troy Perry, who started the Metropolitan Community Church in 1968, he said, no, let's not have a demonstration. This is Los Angeles. Let's have a parade. Mm. Yeah. So while New York and San Francisco in 1970, June 1970, had demonstrations, L.A. had a parade down Hollywood Boulevard. And that was the first one in the world. And now every major city and a lot of minor cities have a parade, gay pride parade annually. So we're happy that we're sort of part of that history this year and that legacy, and we're partnering up with Christopher Street West, and we are having a huge event June 7th from 5 to 9. It's at the Ricardo Maltaban Theater on, off of Hollywood and Vine on Vine, right across from the Trader Joe's on Vine. And um, it, we're, going to be showing, we're going to be showing new clips from my film. Brand new, we're going to be premiering brand new clips from that. And we're also going to be screening some rarely seen LGBT films from the 60s and 70s from Los Angeles filmmakers. That's awesome. Um, yeah. We got them from, very generously received them from USC archives and UCLA film and television archives. And um, yes, so thank you. And also um, some of those films are from legendary filmmaker Pat Rocco, who um, captured a lot of he he did a lot of films in the 60s and 70s, but he captured a lot of um, historical events as well, protests. Um, you know, the Barney's Beanery legacy, the, the faggot stay out sign that was in Barney's Beanery yeah, for a long time. Hollywood. Yeah, he caught the pro, he made a short film called Sign of Protest, which we'll be playing that night, which was about those protests in 1970. Mm -hmm. um, it's very, it's a really interesting film because he goes in there, he shows, you see the sign, he talks to these patrons, and he talks to the, some the owner, and you know, and then he talks to people outside. You see, there's a lot of legendary um, LA activists and LGBT members like Reverend Troy Perry's in there. 1970, Morris Kite, who was a huge. Um, um, influence in, in in our community um, and um, also we're going to have a pre-program VIP party um, it's hosted by Christopher Street West LA Pride and there and then we're also having a huge after party after the program the the party before is a VIP and then general admission program and the after party and the after party is going to be in the and they also have a really beautiful rooftop where you can go up and see the sunset. But you, to buy tickets, you can go to www.themaltalban. And that's spelled like Ricardo Maltalban. It's M-O-T-A-L-B-A-N.com. And there are two tiered prices. There's a general admission and then there's a VIP ticket. So it's going to be a really, really fun event. What are the uh, prices? The general admission is twenty, and the VIP is a hundred. Oh, yeah. So it's pretty cheap for for an event like. That. Right, and you're curating this event, so you know it, it, it goes to fund all of this. It's right? gonna go to it's gonna go to complete the film. All of the funding are gonna go to complete the film, 
And a big shout out to Rico at the Maltabon Theater. He's been really helpful. He's a, he's a house manager. Oh, and also we have special guests that that are going to be a Q and A that are going to do. A We're going to have. Have actually a lot of member of Christopher Street West, Reverend Troy Perry is going to mm-hmm. be there. He also founded the Metropolitan Community Church. We're also going to have Jean Cordova, who um, worked at the Metro- worked at the community center back in the 70s, and she's written many books. And she's just sort of a badass Latina that um, just did a lot for lesbians. She also started this um, magazine called The Lesbian Tide, and um, she's amazing. And then we also have one of the co-founders of the Gay Community Services Center, which is now the Lesbian and Gay Center. In 1970, it started, and and his name is John Platania. So we're going to have those three amazing, legendary people. And we're also working on getting a celebrity host, and we're talking to a couple people, but I can't say anything about that right now. Right. (laughs) Well, we respect that. Yeah. We thank you this morning for joining us this morning, and we look forward to seeing you at the official 2015 L.A. Pride kickoff party. Thank you. Thank you, Gregorio. For more information on L.A. A Queer History, visit www.lakequeerhistory.com. And for more information on the official 2015 L.A. Pride kickoff, visit www.themontanbalband.com. So that's spelled T-H-E-M-O-N-T-A-L-B as in boy, A-N.com. You can reach Gregorio Davila through email at one Greg Davila at gmail.com. That's one G-R-G, um, correction, one G-R-E-G-D-A-B as in Victor, I-L-A at gmail.com. To obtain more information about Queer Talk, visit LGBTHeroes.com under Talk Radio. Thank you for listening to Queer Talk, and we live and we leave you listening to Leo Vargas, A Perfect World. The power is in our hands. If we just have faith that we can make a perfect world. Eine perfekte Welt. A perfect world. Um, mundo perfect. Place to go.